I am Sami J. Karam of Populist, and I am joined today by Michelle Wooker, who is a celebrated author. Some of you may recall that Michelle was gracious enough to join this podcast about a year ago. And at the time, he was at the onset of the pandemic. And the subject of the podcast last year was to look at the pandemic as a gray rhino event. Michel is the author of The Gray Rhino, which was a bestseller that came out a few years ago. And we discussed last March at length the, the application of the gray rhino idea to the pandemic. And a gray rhino event she described as highly probable, highly impactful, but neglected until it is too late and until it becomes too expensive or very expensive to deal with it. The Gray Rhino had a great reception uh, in many countries, was a bestseller, was especially well-read in, in Asia, in China and other places. And now Michelle is back because she has a new book out, which I've been uh, reading which seems uh, as interesting or even more interesting, perhaps. The title is You Are What You Risk, The New Art and Science of Navigating an Uncertain World. Uh, it just came out, and uh, we're going to discuss it today with Michelle. I think it's time that we bring her on. Thank you for joining us. Michelle, can you hear me? Yes, thank you for having me. It's great to talk again. It's great to hear you, and it's great to have you back. So you are what you risk. Please tell us, can you describe the main thesis of the book, how you decided to write it, and then we'll take it from there. Sure. Well, You Are What You Risk uh, is, in many ways, a, a sequel to The Gray Rhino. It, it came out of a lot of questions that came up uh, as I was touring the world. Uh, two sets of questions. One uh, that uh, people would always ask, how do I apply this to my personal life? And some people just went ahead and applied it to their personal life. And of course, The Gray Rhino was written for a policy and finance and business strategy audience. So this was, this was kind of new and a surprise for me. And the other thing that people asked me was, how come this took off in such a big way in Asia, but certain people in the West, particularly in the U U.S., insist on calling things black swan that nobody could have seen coming when in fact lots of people did see them coming and hollered about it and didn't get listened to. And so it went in a little bit deeper, um, looking at the psychological and the cultural origins of why we respond the way we do to gray rhinos, you know, why you let yourself get trampled or get out of the way or find a way to harness the strength of it. And it all goes into risk attitudes, uh, which I found just fascinating research on, things that were completely surprising. Like if you have spicy food for lunch, your risk preferences go up for the next few hours, whether or not you like spicy food in the first place. And uh, there are you know, stereotypes about spicy food and risk for now we know the obvious reason. Um, but I look at really the, the combination of things that go into your risk decisions. And the thesis is that your risk choices define you as clearly as a fingerprint on a glass at a crime scene. You know, the de detective goes in and, and uh, uh, rubs their, their black powder on it, and this thing comes up that identifies you distinctively. And your risk choices and everything that goes into them act the same way as a person, as an organization, or as a country or society. And so my thesis is by looking into the origins of why you make the risk decisions and choices that you do, you can understand yourself better. You can develop habits that optimize your risk taking. And you can also take it one step further and understand the risk fingerprints of the people around you. And that is a hugely powerful tool in leadership, in teamwork, in negotiations, in sales, and even in personal relationships. And, and in this book, I do go into a lot more on personal issues than in the other book, although apparently I did so unintentionally. Um, 
But I also okay, look this at is, this is uh, it's really interesting. Uh, you mentioned it as a choice, uh, risk choices. You said, mm -hmm. uh, I th but I think you mean that some of it is uh, innate. I mean, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that's that's. But I use that word a lot too, so you're fine. <laughs> okay, so it sounds it sounds like from uh, what I've seen is that you know some of a person's risk appetite or risk fingerprint, as you put it, which is uh, is actually a much better way to put it: risk fingerprint rather than appetite. Because some people don't have appetite for risk, so whereas everyone would have a fingerprint, um, part of it is innate. You know, part of it. Um, I hesitate to say, but maybe even genetic or however you want to describe it. In other words, something you're born with and some of it perhaps you acquire through life experience. Am I, am I right that this is a good way to put it? Or Absolutely. And if, if you think about a real fingerprint, you know, the reason that detectives use them is because those, you know, arcs and whorls and the shapes on your finger are genetically imprinted and unique to you. Uh, but so are things like if you cut your finger, there's a scar and, you know, your risk experiences act in that way too. And those experiences interact with your innate characteristics. Like there are some people who will have a big shock and for some of them it becomes liberating. They're like, well, if I got through that, then I can take all sorts of other risks and be much more confident about them working out. And some people become extremely conservative in response to that. So there's this interaction between the, the innate personality traits and the experiences. And then the third thing is really the habits and the environment. I mean, your fingerprint's going to look very different if you do manual labor and have calluses, or you work at a desk and use sweet smelling lotion on your hands. And most of us don't think about how our fingerprints actually sweat, but, but they do. And that talks about your environment. Surprisingly, the temperature of the room affects the kinds of risk decisions that you make. And the two components of that, one is, is how sensitive you are to the risk, uh, you know, how, you know how, how much you perceive the risk to be and whether you pay attention at all. And then the other part is, as you were mentioning, the appetite you know, or tolerance. You know, how much are you willing to take on? And those also interact in, in funny ways. You can have two people taking the exact same risk decision and for one person, it might feel super risky. So they've actually got higher risk tolerance than the person who doesn't see it as exact, exactly the same amount of risk. And so technically, they're actually showing less risk tolerance because they thought it was not as risky in the first place. It's very true, especially in, um, as you know, I've worked for years in the financial industry. What you said is, is exactly right. Uh, some people will take the same risk and feel like it's, uh, it, it comes very easily to them, whereas others feel uh, while taking the same risk that they're really making a leap. And, uh, you know, the, the lesson you learn, I think, very quickly in investing is that uh, not to overreact to your most recent experience. So uh, based on, on what you were saying earlier, that uh, if somebody's had a bad experience, maybe they'll pull their horns in. Whereas if someone has had a good experience or a good string of recent experiences, they may, it may embolden them to take more risk. But the experience in financial markets or in investing very often uh, is the opposite or, or the lesson, I should say, the lesson you learn is often the opposite. In other words, if you've done very well with your investments, rather than be emboldened to sort of double down, perhaps you should, as, as most things uh, sort of move in a bit of a cycle, an upward moving cycle, but a cycle anyway, that you may perhaps get a bit more cautious after a great run. And uh, conversely, that if you just had a very bad uh, year or two in your investment results, the natural human reaction would be to get more skittish because you lose confidence, you feel like uh, you don't know what you're doing, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, but meanwhile, you know, if you have the wherewithal, you should be having the opposite reaction to a bad run of a few years. And that would be to get bolder and uh, take more risk when really your, 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 inner, uh, your inner ear uh, 
it's telling you not to because you're in pain based on your most recent experience. So I wonder if that applies to life also. Uh, most people would not react this way, you know, after a string of bad uh, experiences in, in anything. Uh, most people would, uh, would end up being more skittish, whereas perhaps the opposite lesson should be learned from that experience. It's a very different set of relationships between experiences and personalities uh, for, for different people. Uh, and it also depends on the kind of choice that's in front of you. I mean, you know, I talk a little bit about refugees in the book and people think of immigrants as, you know, big risk takers. But when you look at the choice between, you know, almost certain death or poverty or both, you know, at home and, you know, the risks that you're taking by getting up and leaving, uh, if you do a cold, hard cost benefits analysis, they're actually choosing the lesser of the two risks. There's a lot of social psychology and yeah, investment I mean, when research. You, when you, sorry to interrupt you, but when you consider that that risk that they're taking to leave sometimes involves the risk of getting on an inflatable with a crowd of strangers and, and uh, crossing the Mediterranean, it, it tells you how dire the conditions at home are in order to be willing for that risk to be uh, deemed preferable to the risk of staying home. That is how bad things are at home. Absolutely. And you hear about immigrant entrepreneurs, or there's actually a, an ex-con I interviewed in the book who's, who's now got a, a chain of, uh, of exercise gyms called Con Body, who talks about his experiences uh, having gotten out, uh, out of prison and finding like nobody would hire him. Uh, and, and his own risk experience was, was very interesting. He'd gained a lot of weight and he was, he was in prison. He'd taken a, a lot of risks, obviously, dealing drugs. Um, but the way you fall into that risk-taking sometimes is kind of easy and unintentional. And it's, it takes a lot of work to switch to taking you know, good risks like entrepreneurship. But for him, the, the fact that he, he couldn't get a job when he got out meant that entrepreneurship was kind of basically the only path. And one of my points is that risk involves a choice. And if you don't have much of a choice, then, you know, is it really a risk-taking or is it following a path. There's, a, there's another person I interviewed, Cindy Chin, um, who was uh, a couple years ago was named one of the you know, 50 most daring by Entrepreneur Magazine. And I asked her, you know, what that, what that meant to her. And she said, it's, you know, having the courage to just, just follow a path. You either follow the path or you don't. And that's not necessarily risk-taking. You know, if you only see the one path, then you don't even see it as a risk sometimes. So this, this perception this perception sort of feedback loop is just fascinating. And, and it does change depending on where you are in life. You know, as you said, you know, for some people, when they make a lot of money and they've got a whole lot there, uh, they become more comfortable taking more risks. You know, ideally, they've got a part of their portfolio that's allocated to the risky, you know, the, the aggressive decisions and other you know, more stable parts as their safety net. But, you know, there are other people who just don't want it to lose it. I mean, we hear about the concept of, of loss aversion um, from, you know, the kind of work that, that, you know, Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tursky and, and all the, the wonderful behavioral economists have done. But the truth is not every person has the same amount of loss aversion. And the thing that explains that goes back to your risk fingerprint, why you are the way that you are. I want to delve a bit more into that, uh, that very question of the fingerprint. This very morning, I was reading an article and I came across an Emily Dickinson quote, and I thought it was applicable to our conversation. And this was Emily Dickinson writing a letter to uh, a friend of hers, uh, Abaya Root, R-O-O-T, who was a classmate of Dickinson's at Amherst Academy. And uh, they were friends in their teens. You know, they met when they were 13 or 14. and. Um, this was written in uh, within the following five to seven years. So here's Emily Dickinson as a teenager or perhaps uh, in her early 20s. And this is the quote in the letter to her friend Abaya Root. The shore is safer, but I love to buffet the sea. I can count the bitter wrecks here in these pleasant waters 
but oh, I love the danger. Staying in what feels like a safe place is actually the riskiest thing to do. I talked to a young couple uh, from Chicago uh, who had had real estate businesses, you know, in their 20s, and um, they almost lost everything in the, in the crash, uh, the, the great financial crisis. Um, and around the time I met them, they had just decided to sell the house that they had bought sort of, you know, under pressure from, uh, from family members. And it was really more than they felt they could reasonably afford. They sold everything. They picked up with their twins and they went around the world. And they're, they're both sort of digital nomad types. They can work from every, from anywhere. And, uh, all of their family was worried about the kids being in school. I said, what are you going to do? Well, of course they go, you know, to Brazil and, and Europe and a couple of places. And they end up in, of all places, New Zealand, which during the pandemic was pretty much the safest place in the right. world to be. So we had a good laugh. She said, you know, our kids have been in school the whole time. We try to organize our lives to minimize any, uh, any, any severe setbacks, right? We, 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 we get education, we try to stay healthy, we, but there's an element that will always remain unpredictable. And that's often the one that uh, hurts you the most. Uh, you know, everyone has these unpredictable setbacks in their own lives, uh, whether it's professional related or personal related. Uh, so to your point, here, here was a couple that, uh, you know, was deemed to be doing something risky, but they ended up turning out better than many of us perhaps for a while in terms of, of education. But let's talk a bit more about the fingerprint idea. Uh, so now that you've done all this research, you've, you've written this book, when you meet somebody or whether it's professionally, personally, do you compose this or, or perceive this interaction you have this, with this person through risk parameters? Well, it's interesting. A bunch of people have been sending me messages, sharing their stories about their own risk profile and, and attitude and how some things that might not seem risky to one person do to another one. And one of the things about the risk fingerprint is that uh, the most important thing is to, to listen, to learn about it. Uh, there's a bit in the book about risk stereotyping. People often think that they know what kind of risks someone's going to take, you know, because they're a woman, because they're in a certain field, because of this, that, or the other. And you really can't generalize at all. There's a lot of research showing that what most people think about women and risk taking is wrong or all those headlines about millennials being so risk averse. Well, you know, it's, I, I like to use the word risk savvy uh, instead of risk averse. You know, the technical definition of risk averse is that you'll take less risk all things being equal. In most cases, things aren't equal. Rarely are they equal. Yeah. It's, I mean, did it's you, like, did you, you know, find the, did you find in your research uh, significant differences between risk uh, aversion, be, whether it's by gender or by age or by ethnicity? Well, what was interesting, uh, Julie Nelson, an economist at University of Boston, has done some really interesting work on uh, gender and risk. And she looked back at a lot of these studies that uh, they came out and they said, oh, yeah, women are so much more risk averse. And she said in a lot of them, it was by such a slim statistically significant margin or sometimes not even uh, that that was questionable. And then she used different statistical techniques. She actually looked at the, at the range instead of the average. And she says, when you look at the range of risk attitudes, there's actually about a 95% overlap uh, between men and women. There are some differences. Uh, for example, men do fit the stereotype of being more likely to uh, you know, have risky sex or, or drive too fast or, or drugs or things like that. Uh, there's very interesting insight though about women uh, taking more or be, be more comfortable with with social risks you know the risk of you know speaking up and saying what someone doesn't want to hear and some of that is because women spend a lot of time being you know the only women in the room or a couple of women or the token and when you say things uh sometimes people will put you down just because you're a woman or sometimes they will ignore you 
And it's where we come up with this phrase, uh, you know, heap eating, which is when a woman has a great idea and everybody ignores her. And then a man says a great idea and everybody applauds and says it's the best idea that they've ever heard. And, and I know so many people who've gone through this experience. So what happens is that when you are regularly faced with bigger risks in a situation that is lower risk to someone else, you actually develop your risk-taking muscle. You become more experienced at taking risks. And that's another one of the factors that determines the difference among risk fingerprints is, is and this is one of the things that's not innate. It's the, like the, you know, whether you put lotion or, or, you know, have calluses, it's that if you regularly get out of your comfort zone, uh, if you take risks regularly, and, but do it in a smart way, not the kind of, you know, leap before you look kind of risk, you actually get better at it. It's like, well, you know, I'm sure, you know, like, you know, traders, their first couple of trades are, are really scary. And the more often you do it, and particularly the more often you succeed, the more confident you are. And a lot of the research also shows that the more knowledge or experience that you have, the better you are at taking risks. It's, it's just like the things that you read about, uh, you know, firemen training over and over and over again, so that when they get to a certain situation, they've got enough experience that it's, it's a reflex to do the right thing. And risk is very, very similar in that way. That's very interesting what you're saying about the, you know, exercising the, the muscle, training the muscle. Because when you're uh, unique, whether it's by gender or by race, or any, any other uh, defining characteristic in a group, Let's say, let's say you're with a group and uh, they all have something in common, something, you know, whether they're all of the same gender or generation or whatever, and, and you're not, you're, you're, you're one or one or one of two or of three who are not, uh, the, the fact of speaking up involves, uh, especially if you want to do it uh, authoritatively, <laughs> you know, involves taking more risk than if you're a part of a group of similarly minded people. I'm not suggesting that people are similarly minded because they're part of the same gender or ethnicity, but people who have some, some bonding, some, some reason to be bonding together versus a relative outsider who has to stick her neck out or his neck out uh, and uh, express himself or herself in a way that is necessary to be taken seriously. So it's, Absolutely. It's, it's, you know, Absolutely. Being, being part, you know that's, that goes back to your point of, you know, all other things not being equal. You know, the, if you take people, you know, two people within that same room who are taking the same risk, but one of them is part of this sort of bonding collective, and the other one is, a, is, is one, is, is alone and, and, and noticed, noticed by the others to be alone as being different and they take the same risk uh you could argue that the latter one the second one is taking more risk than the first right absolutely and actually this this question of the you know the dynamic of of who's in the room and who's saying what is actually very important in in two ways one and that if you've got diverse perspectives you're more likely to hear alternative views that might help you to be more alert to, to risks, you know, particularly the gray rhino risks that are obvious to some people and other people don't necessarily want to hear about. But this whole process of soliciting feedback and listening to hear for things that you don't expect, that feels risky in a certain way in and of itself. But it's another great example of, of if you don't take that risk, you're actually subjecting yourself to greater risks. It's that that diversity of points of view that helps you to see both dangers and opportunities that you might not have noticed otherwise. Yeah, because once you're in the room, if you don't speak up, uh, you're completely ignored. So, you know, if you're, if you're an outsider, correct? Whereas that, if you yeah. speak up, you know, that's your only chance in a way to make your mark. But, uh, you know, along the same lines, but a bit more broadly, you have a table on page 106 of the book, which uh, I thought was very, very interesting, which has to do with risk perception gap by region. And, you know, we're just talking about gender or some other dimensions like ethnicity and so forth. But here you're talking about different regions of the world. And I'll let you describe it, but uh, I'm curious about your findings about how you think 
people from these different regions perceive and handle risk? Oh, I'm so glad. A lot of people really love that chart that the, the Lloyd's Register Foundation did uh, in a, a, a world uh, risk poll, you know, attitudes about all kinds of risks around the world. And they looked at, uh, you know, how, how many, you know, how many risks or which kind of risk countries had experienced and the gap between that experience level and how worried they were about it. And it was very, very, you know, it's a very different distance for all sorts of different countries. It's uh, very similar to something that um, uh, Ipsos does, uh, the Misperceptions Index, uh, which is sort of more popularly known. I, I feel bad because I think they're trying to discourage this, um, known as the, the Ignorance Index, but it's like it asks people to cal cal calculate how likely they think it is that something's going to happen. And then they compare that to the empirical, empirical evidence. And it's very different for all sorts of countries. And that's very much in keeping with my experience going back and forth between Asia and the US. And as you know, I also come from a finance background. Uh, earlier in my career, I wrote about emerging markets debt, sort of the restructuring of all the, the 1980s defaulted debt into Brady bonds, and then later on the, the re-restructuring out of, of Brady bonds. Um, but, uh, you know, I found that, uh, you know, when I would go to China and other places in Asia, there was a lot of interest in financial risk, risk in uh, asset bubbles, in shadow banking, a lot of these big financial risk topics, um, also actually in, in AI and technology, the, the societal and econo economic implications of those and I'd come back to the States and, you know, would be in, in fairly high level gatherings of, of economics and finance minded people and raise this question of market bubbles and uh, uh, quantitative easing leading to uh, imbalances in the economy and would get sort of gobbledygook about, well, the mechanisms aren't there and blah, blah, blah. And it just, you know, really people not wanting to hear it. And it, it set my head spinning, this huge difference between Asia and the U.S. There also was a poll that I cite a lot. It was actually a survey of about 300-something uh, artificial intelligence experts around the world. And they asked them how soon it would be till we got to high-level machine intelligence, uh, which, you know, when machines can do pretty much everything better than humans. And it was very interesting. The Westerners thought it would take about twice as long as the Asian experts. So completely different perceptions of how fast, uh, how big, how important certain risks uh, were and are. And there are all sorts of things that go into those, those, uh, those perceptions. And I think it's very important for, say, you know, multinationals doing business in different countries, uh, for anyone you know, investing in financial markets uh, across borders to sort of understand how that risk perception is shaping government policy and also how the policy environment is set up to respond to those risks or not. And, you know, depending on your investment strategy, if you just want to ride the volatility up and down, you're going to see very different opportunities or dangers from someone who is interested actually in, you know, in steady growth or you know, who needs a certain amount of stability, like say, you know, someone who runs a business instead of is just uh, trading in financial markets. So completely different views of risks, completely different uh, perceptions of opportunities, of dangers. And in fact, in some cases, complete different perceptions of the nature of risk itself. I mean, for some people, they hear risk and they, they think, ooh, scary, dangerous, peril, loss. And some people say, oh, risk, risk asset. You've got to pile on more risk. You know, you got, you, it, it, they just see the upside. But risk is actually value neutral. And it's important to be aware of the bias that you bring to things. Do you see both sides and do you weigh them? Or are you likely to overweigh the downside or overweigh the upside? And that's hugely important to your own investment strategy, all decisions. And if you're a financial advisor, your clients' biases are important and you need to understand those. Right. What you said, I think you said something um, that's maybe the, the quote that will stay with me. You said risk is value neutral um, because there are many cultures, many places, let's say, where the word risk, as, as you just said, is, is a negative, like be wary of risk. You know, you, you grow up, I grew up with parents, friends, etc., uh, cautioning me and saying, don't take risks. 
you know, literally, don't take risk. Um, and so, so in that case, risk was presented as a negative. Like risk is something that has the potential to cause you great harm. That was, that was the idea, that if you take a risk, you will pay for it. But on the other hand, as you just pointed out, there are other places where risk, is, risk means opportunity. Take a risk. You know, there it's the opposite. Or here it's the opposite. You know, take a risk instead of don't take a risk. Um, I remember, I think, um, one of the major brokers a few years ago, or a few, actually two decades ago or so, was they had this, uh, which I'm sure you recall, had this advertising that said the, the greatest risk is not taking any or something to that effect. Mm-hmm. So here, you know, here, here in a way that the whole, there's a whole idea that risk is, means opportunity. But that, you know, if I go by your quote, which I agree with, that risk is value neutral, that, that, that also is not, uh, de, you know, a priori true, you know, because you can, you can look at it as opportunity and lose your shirt or uh, suffer in other ways. So it's, uh, it's value neutral and it's for each person to evaluate whether uh, a certain risk is worth taking, whether it's professionally or personally or... I mean, you know, there are some people who are experts in negotiation who, uh, who tell you that uh, human interactions, every human interaction is in some way a negotiation. You know, whether you're saying, you know, at what time do you want to have this podcast? 10 a.m., 11 a.m.? Which movie do you want to go see? You know, you end up, maybe you want different movies, you end up negotiating. Uh, but you could say, you know, I could take that same quote and say, Every human interaction or almost every human interaction involves a, an attempt to uh, evaluate and match risks on both sides, uh, which is after reading your book, I'm thinking of it or I'm trying to think of it in these terms and it really opens up a whole other way of thinking of interactions because you know, the, the interactions that we choose, whether they're professional or personal, are in the end sort of an evaluation of the risk that we're taking and the the person or the organization on the other side is making a similar calculation whether they do it consciously or not of you know whether they want to interact back with you in the same way that you propose and uh, if if you cast uh, even like the hiring process at an organization or a person choosing uh, to join a sports club or uh, who they're going to date or who they're going to marry. A lot of this can be, in a way, rethought in terms of matching risk profiles. Of course, in uh, other countries, some other countries, uh, a lot of this is sort of set on a given course by uh, people who are already established you know, and, and it, it's less of a, you, le- you have less of a say, you know, even in marriage, right? Like, like uh, arranged marriages in a way is, is, a, is an attempt by the parents to, uh, in their minds at least, to minimize the risk that is involved in marriage. So uh, maybe every interaction is a risk or, or, is, or, or should be seen as, a, as a, uh, an attempt to mesh or to match risks on, or risk fingerprints, as you put it, on both sides? Every single choice is, is a risk. And when you start looking at your choices through that lens, it, it helps you balance things. And, and as far as risk fingerprints, sometimes it's helpful for people to have two similar ones. And, and often it's helpful for people to have risk fingerprints that, that complement each other. Where, you know, one person might be always, you know, rushing ahead and needs, needs someone and they know they need someone to kind of slow them down a bit. It's, it's a matter of being very transparent about what those are and thinking about what the other person's risk needs are. I, mean, I think so many relationships could really benefit from that. There's, there's an interview I did. It's a closing interview in, in the book with, uh, with Mark Pollock and uh, Adventurer. Uh, explorer uh, and uh, his fiance Simone George, who's a, a lawyer, and uh, he was the first blind man to to race across the, the South Pole. 
and and um, when he was 29, he fell out of a window and became confined to a wheelchair. And it was about a month before they were supposed to get married. And uh, they tell this story. It's a great TED talk, which I saw, and they were friends of mine already, so I followed up with them. And you know, he tried to break up with her because he looked at all of the risks that her life would involve. You know, being married to a, a man who was in a wheelchair, and he just didn't—he didn't want to impose that on her. And she did her own risk calculation, and she's like, you know, I don't want to risk being stuck with someone I'm not as crazy about. And at the end of the interview, all three of us were, were pretty much in tears. That's um, a great story. It was just like really radical risk empathy. And these, these are just, you know, there are two people who have taken a lot of risks in their, in their lives and their careers. And their big risk now is, oh, we're going to find a cure for paralysis in our lifetimes. There's no that's, risk that's, there. That's really a, a great story. <laughs> Very inspiring. There are a couple of other concepts I want to discuss with you before I let you go. One of them is you mentioned uh, micromort. Am I pronouncing this correctly? If, you, if I'm pronouncing you, it correctly, you are. <laughs> so tell us what this is about. You have risks measured in micromorts or in micromort. Yeah. So it's, you, you can actually look at it from two different things. Um, it's uh, either, you know, how many, it's basically a measure of uh, the, the small amount of risk that, uh, that involves different uh, different activities like you know riding a bicycle or you know eating bacon uh, you know how much does that reduce your life expectancy and you can so am I, a micro more then is a unit in a way like a unit of risk yeah you could or, you could definitely or a, describe or it a that unit way. of reduction in your life uh, as a result of that risk well, that's actually a whole interesting uh, other <laughs> path to go down because, I mean, it's not a risk that you're going to die. I mean, you're, okay. you're going to die. It's kind of a certainty. Uh, you know, the risk is that you're going to die early or, you know, you're going to die, you know, sooner or you're going to die with your affairs and complete chaos. Um, so it's, it's a measure of, you know, reduction in life expectancy, okay. but uh, it's a proxy for, uh, for risk. But it's, a, you know, it's a way to measure uh, you know, am I going to ride my bicycle through this traffic? Uh, you know, how how often am I going to eat bacon for breakfast? Uh, am I going to take a plane somewhere or drive a car somewhere? And it's a great way of, you know, assessing just how risky the things that you're doing are. And of course, any sort of so-called, you know, empirical measure of risk has uh, has wiggle room. In it, I mean, people spend a lot of time trying to assign probabilities to different risks, and and sometimes that has more accuracy than than others. Um, but I think these are you know pretty good ballpark figures that you can use. And just okay. a couple of weeks ago, I was talking with a friend who who mentioned a concept that I'm kicking myself for not having come up with uh, in the book. I talk about risk portfolios in the book. You yes. did include it in the book. Well, the risk portfolio I did, but not the risk budget. This, you know, this she was this friend was talking about taking a trip to visit, and um, they were looking at their coronavirus risk budget. Like, you know, okay, traveling is a certain amount of risk. Eating out is a certain amount of risk. You know, how much time we spend away is a certain amount of risk. So they kind of added up all the, the the risks in their risk budget for the trip, and you know, reduced some of those in in a qualitative way, not quantitative. But um, but the risk portfolio involves your life. You actually often have very different uh, risk attitudes and tolerances in, in different parts of your life. Like for example, you are not going to find me base jumping. You're just not. <laughs> but, okay. you know, in terms of, you know, being, uh, you know, an entrepreneur who works with ideas, you know, my dad always says to me, he's like, I could never do what you do. Although like my, my dad took all sorts of other risks, you know, got married and had four kids. And I actually just found out recently, which I didn't know. Um, he at one point was considering buying a, uh, a tennis club in, uh, in Arkansas. And I remember okay. going on the trip when we were kids, I had no idea. Like I thought he was going to quote unquote, just get a job there. Um, so he actually had some entrepreneurial tendencies as well, but, but there's like the relationships and family, there's the health. I have celiac disease. So like every single meal for me is an exercise in risk management and, right. you know, ethical risks, uh, you know, professional risks. Uh, you know, it used to be that the, the safest thing to do would be to work for a big corporation and work there for years and years and years and years. And that's not the way it is anymore. But so when you're looking at, you know, you could even say a, a risk budget across your whole risk portfolio. Um, you know, if you want to be an entrepreneur, if you want to make your 
your professional life full of particular kinds of risks, although a lot of entrepreneurs that I know see that as less risky than working for a company where if you get a bad boss, your job is gone um, and they they can control it. Um, But if you do that, then do you have a better support system around you in terms of relationships, in other finances, in in health? Uh, There were two business consultants who I interviewed in the book, but they're co-owners of a firm here in Chicago. And they talked about uh, their differences in uh, in risk, you know, there are different risk fingerprints and how those complemented each other, but, you know, how they dealt with it when she had a heart attack and, you know, how that health risk actually completely changed her orientation. And so when, when you're looking at your risk fingerprint, you can look at the different parts of your life and see, well, you know, hey, I'm, I'm willing to take big risks here and not there. And there are some people who are totally fine with the risk you know, dialed up to 10 on all of those areas in their life. My guess is that's a minority of people and it's certainly not me. But when you think about the kind of risk taker you are, uh, think about how it applies in different areas of your life and how they either complement each other or make each other worse. Uh, you know, I've, I've had times in my life where I've had to completely prioritize my health, uh, which, you know, means taking financial risks or career risks or, or whatever. But for me, that was central. I sort of felt like if I don't get my health into order, then, you know, I'm not going to be able to work. I'm not going to have any financial stability there. And so you have to make those trade-offs. Sure. So I look forward to perhaps a paper uh, written by you about risk budget, or maybe that's that's material for your next book. Well, it's a good thing about the way I see these is like, I don't, I I don't want my books to be stuck in between the covers, even, you know, the gray rhino, the conversations that came out of the gray rhino led to what's now you are what you risk. And I've had such great conversations. And, you know, whenever people ask me to speak, I always kind of hope that there's a a Q&A section because that's where I learn the most. So you will definitely be hearing more about risk budgets as well. So, you know, we spoke, you and I, uh, or we did a podcast uh, a year ago. It's actually 13 months ago because it was on March 25th. So very soon after the lockdown started, you know, the soft lockdown in the United States. Uh, And I think uh, this is a good way to conclude our our talk today because back then, you know, we, we had discussed at length how uh, the pandemic was a gray rhino event. And, uh, but I'm trying to recall, and perhaps you, you will recall the same or something different. Our mindset at the time, 13 months ago, relative to the pandemic and relative to how long it would last. And I think from my own perspective, I don't think I saw it. I don't think that uh, back then that I thought we would be where we are today with the pandemic. I think uh, I was probably more optimistic than it turned out. Uh, I mean, the vaccines, as everyone says, came uh, sooner than most people expected in record time as these things go, were developed in record time. So, uh, but I think it isn't that I was expecting the vaccines to come sooner because that would have been wholly unrealistic because as it is, they came very quickly. But I think I was hoping herd immunity would be reached sooner. And I was giving uh, credence uh, to some articles I had read that had uh, claimed that uh, herd immunity in, in the present uh, pandemic uh, would have been reached at a much lower level of infection. So I didn't think that, you know, we'd be sitting in April 2021 still dealing with, uh, you know, a very live crisis with everyone still masked, with social distancing, with people still working from home. If you recall, did you uh, a year ago, do you do you think back then you were thinking that we'd still be here 13 months later? No, no. And I think a lot of people didn't also partly based on our more recent experiences, uh, you know, with, with SARS and H1N1 and MERS even, uh, there were some, some stories about initial efforts to develop vaccines, uh, but that the, the, those epidemics were, uh, were nipped in the bud uh, too soon. Um, so they just never got far enough. And I think that, you know, from recent experience, it, it made more 
it made sense to expect that this wasn't going to go quite as long. And also from re recent experiences that uh, that the viruses didn't seem to do quite as well in in warmer weather. And I think people were hoping for the for the warmer weather. So that shows, I guess, we were talking earlier about how your recent experiences uh, color what you expect to happen. And even despite the the hugely polarized uh, environment in the United States. Um, I think a lot of people expected more polarization and divisions, but you know, the way that the masks became such a political football, I think made things worse and uh, really you know, prolonged the, the problem. So I think it's, it's continuing to go on. And then I, I, hear, uh, I hear things now saying, well, you, know, you think COVID was bad, just you wait for the future. Uh, because I always do try to turn the conversation forward. Uh, I get all these questions, you know, the, the, the was COVID a black swan or a gray rhino? And uh, it's, it's in a very backward looking way because that's how people talk about black swans. It's, you know, in hindsight. And, and you know, it just drove me nuts when people were saying this was a black swan that, that nobody saw coming when, you know, even in the black swan book itself, uh, you know, the author talks about uh, pandemics as something that could happen in the future. You know, my great grandfather died in the great flu uh, of uh, 1918. Right. So, so I try to keep things uh, forward looking like what's, what's happening next. And I think that involves looking forward to, you know, how prepared are we for the next one? Cause there is going to be a big next one and epidemiologists are already talking about that. And, you know, we're seeing new strains um, but I think for just about uh, any crisis, uh, it's, it helps when something happens, it catalyzes attention, it allows you to look forward. I think we, the pandemic has drawn a lot of attention to, you know, to inequality, to very bad risk pricing. You know, the, the kind of people who are frontline workers who were taking the most risks were not being properly compensated for that. And I think still not properly compensated or, or protected um, it's, you know, the pandemic has drawn a lot of attention to climate change, uh, with the data showing that the cities with, with more pollution and, and, you know, there's, there's, there's not a one-to-one -one match between greenhouse gases and some of the, you know, pollutants, but they're close enough. They're pretty co correlated. Um, you know, the cities with the higher pollution are the ones with the higher, uh, mortality rates. And so there are a lot of things that were existing already that the pandemic drew a lot of attention to. And, you know, similarly, the, you know, the Suez Canal, I got lots of questions about that boat that got stuck. And I'm like, I'm not a shipping expert. I, I did not predict this, this happened, but, but there've been some really great articles about the experts who were predicting that that was going to happen and the attention that that has drawn going forward to the fact that ships are getting bigger and bigger, that there's, you know, different traffic patterns, particularly after all the trade tensions of the last couple of years, you're going to see new shipping patterns. And those are the things that we absolutely have no excuse not to be looking at going forward as, as gray rhinos and, and not as black swans. Right. Yeah. On the uh, shipping, that's a whole other story, but um, yeah, many people saw it because the ships were getting too big and the economies of scale for the supply chain were, were not there. But um, on the, uh, you know, going back to the pandemic briefly, uh, you know, there's no doubt that some, as, as painful and as deadly as it's been, as these crises go, you know, even major cataclysms like wars and things like that, uh, Unfortunately, it, sometimes it takes that to accelerate awareness and uh, solutions for other things. You know, like after World War II, technology took a leap uh, in part as a result of discoveries that were made during the war. And in this case, uh, I saw an article not, not so long ago entitled uh, The Last Pandemic, referring to the current one, meaning that uh, in the author's view, our way of dealing with it and the speed with which the vaccines were developed opened a whole other way of dealing with such crisis. And uh, in, in his view, uh, that uh, the next coronavirus or other, other pandemic can be uh, addressed very early on thanks to our new health technology. I hope he's right. But, uh, and other things, like you said, are now uh, have come to the front burner so, you know, it's been uh, very difficult, especially for uh, 
you know, people who lost someone or were somehow uh, severely impacted. But um, you know, to, for society, maybe society managed to manages to derive some gains from it after it's all over. Anyway, if you um, have nothing to add, I will just say to our listeners that this is an amazing book. You Are What You Risk by Michelle Wooker. It will change entire understanding of risk, your own uh, self-awareness of your own risk fingerprint, of how risk plays a role in your interactions with other people, whether it's uh, your professional colleagues, your friends, your personal relations. So I highly recommend it. For me, it was an eye-opener in many different ways. Uh, Michelle, would you like to conclude with some thought? Well, uh, Sammy, I want to, to, to thank you for this great uh, conversation and, uh, you know, point out that, that uh, you know, you're among the, the, the people who was really very helpful as I developed some of these uh, ideas and, and thought about them. And uh, so it's just really been an, an honor and a, and a pleasure to get to, to know you and, uh, and your work, work and uh, makes me that much happier that, uh, that you appreciate what I've been uh, what I've been trying to achieve with You Are What You Risk and really trying to help to catalyze that conversation because I, I really do see it as, as beginning a conversation that goes way beyond the pages of the book that I really want readers to apply to their own lives, to their businesses, to their communities and, and put to work. That it is not just a book in between two covers. It's, it's something that can actually help, help you to, to thrive and to make better decisions in life. I feel like we've touched uh, and perhaps done it well, some very important points, but um, there's there's a lot that we weren't even able to get to. But I, at any rate, I thank you very much for your time. I'm Sammy Karam. This was Michelle Wooker, the author previously of The Gray Rhino and more recently of You Are What You Risk. Thank you very much, Michelle Wooker, and thank you, listeners, for joining us. Thank you, Sammy, and to your listeners as well. Mm-hmm.